that's what happened in Tokyo. And uh, after I broke my paddle in half, this is it for me. It's got to be something different. It's got to change the whole world around me. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep the Flame Alive, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? Well, I keep saying it's been a rough week, but this week was unique in that the dog got a sports injury. <laughs> what you happened? Know, we were doing some tennis ball training drills and her back leg slipped and it ended up she had a, you know, $750 later, she had a soft tissue injury, and now she's on, like, all these different medications to reduce the swelling and the pain. And, of course, the dog just wants to get back to training. Aww. So she keeps bringing me her tennis ball as she's sort of limping. Poor dog. <laughs> Poor Lucy. So she may, have to do, she may have to do some physical therapy, some water therapy. She's getting better every day. So Good. she's she's improving, but it gave me a whole new perspective of when the athletes get hurt, how they just desperately want to get back to training because she just brings the ball and drops it out at my feet and looks at me like, training drills, mom, come on. So yeah, somehow explaining a seven to 10 day recovery period to the dog <laughs> has been a little rough. Aw, well, hopefully she will jump right back into it. Poor thing. Oh, she wants to jump. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> oh. Well, before we get to today's show, we have follow-up from last week. So we talked about protests at the Games, and hammer thrower Gwen Berry had made a protest on the podium at the Pan Am Games last year, and uh, she received a 12-month probation for her actions. So on uh, Twitter, she put out a four-page letter, which was very interesting. You want to tell us a little bit about it? Well... On June 2nd, Sarah Hirschland, who is the CEO of the USOPC, put out a statement saying, we condemn racism, we support our athletes. And Gwen Berry's statement seemed to be in response to that, in that it was too uh, nebulous. She never used the word, you know, Black Lives Matter. It was very much like we support our athletes and we support their right to speak out. And Gwen Berry basically said, oh, no, you don't. I was speaking out and you gave me probation and you're a hypocrite. And then Sarah Hirschland came out with a second statement a couple of days or this week. So I think it would have been on the June 9th saying, you're right, we're not doing enough. And in the statement, she specifically said, Black Lives Matter. She used that phrase, which is the first time anyone officially at the USOPC has used that phrase. Oh, wow. And USOPC is creating an athlete commission to come up with guidelines as to how athletes can protest at the podium, at events, though they're going to have to work with the IOC because the IOC still has rule 50 that says you can't. So they're walking a fine line and she's invited, I'm sure she's going to invite Gwen Berry specifically, but she said any athlete that wants to participate is welcome and they would welcome it. So at least 
Sarah Hirschland heard the criticism and responded to it. I have to give her credit for that. That was yeah. no joke that she didn't just say, no, I've made my, and a lot of athletes have commented about official national governing bodies and national uh, Olympic organizations statements have been too, we love all people. We respect all people. We condemn racism and not hard hitting enough. Right. Which is, and this is interesting because the IOC executive board met today, today is Wednesday and I listened to the press conference afterwards and they also issued a statement on racism, which was in the same thing. They condemned racism and uh, specifically how that does not, uh, it's, Non-discrimination is one of the pillars of Olympism and it's principle six of the charter and T-Bock read that. But again, it was pretty nebulous and didn't say a whole lot. However, he said that they've tasked the Athletes Commission with coming up with some solutions. So apparently they're talking and uh, there's a platform for Olympic athletes called Athletes 365. And uh, there's a lot of conversation going on there. One of the reporters on the call asked what he thought some solutions should be. And Tibak, I think to his credit, said it shouldn't be for me to say anything right now. Let's let the athletes come up with some stuff and then we'll continue talking about it because he didn't want to uh, imply a certain direction in which they should go. But uh, apparently the Athletes Commission doesn't always come up with some hard-hitting concrete stuff either. So... We'll see. Did did they say anything about specifically making revisions to Rule 50? Well, Rule 50, first of all, we should say, is the rule that bans any kind of protests during podium ceremonies or at the events. So did they specifically say anything about that or was he leaving no. it very gray? No, very, very gray still. I don't I'm not sure they want to get rid of Rule 50. And as we talked last week, the the protest thing is very difficult because you have protests for human rights reasons you could have protests that are very anti-human rights. And what do you allow in if you just do a blanket? We allow protests now. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of the IOC Athletes Commission, what comes of the USOPC Athletes Commission. We should look and see what other NOCs are doing because I know there's a lot of issues around this around the world. It's not just an American thing. So we'll uh, keep an eye on that. So it's ever-changing. But (laughs) did you hear what Alexia Gooden published this week? Oh my gosh, I heard this, yes. So he published some very transphobic and homophobic statements. So this goes back to what we were saying about once you let one protest in, you open yourself up for some very anti-human rights Mm -hmm. statements to possibly be made. So... They are in a a tough position, though I was happy to see the USOPC responding to their athletes. Yeah, so we will. That's a good sign. Well, hopefully these steps will actually come to some kind of concrete solution that we can see and see change actually happening versus just. Yeah, that it's not just another blue ribbon commission that comes out with a report that gets shoved in a draw. Exactly. All right, let's move on to this week's guest. This week, we're having the second part of our interview with Andres Toro. Speaking of human rights, we've got a defector today. So as you may remember, he's a four-time Olympian in the sport of canoe sprint, and he competed at Rome 1960 and Tokyo 1964 for Hungary. At Tokyo, he defected to the U.S., 
And then he competed at Munich 1972 and Montreal 1976 for the USA. And after his last Olympics, he became involved with the USOC, and he's also remained involved with the sport. He recently published a memoir called Chronicles of an Olympic Defector to share his life story. Back in episode 136, he told us about the sport of canoe sprint, and today he's talking about his Olympic experiences. Take a listen. Let's go back to the beginning of your athletic. Talk about, you got into the sport because your brothers were Correct. in Hungary, canoeing's popular. And how did you get chosen to be in your clubs? Well, well the club was, uh, as I said in my, my book also, that club was uh, the army club, which the club system in Hungary was interesting because a club just not just uh, had one sport, but all the Olympic sports included in the club. And my club was uh, for a canoe kayak sport portion of the, the army. And uh, it was in a beautiful part of Budapest that's on the, on the middle part of the Danube, that Margaret Island. And uh, we had a boathouse there with another other club. Uh, other, and uh, that's where we, we launched a boat, and uh, that's where we started. Interesting enough, the Danube is a nice river, but, you know, to learn pa- paddling the single canoe, it's not really the best river to do it because it's, uh, it's always choppy and it's, uh, you know, it's shallow. If you get too close to the shore, you can break your paddle, you know, maybe even damage the boat. So you really had to know that the, and, the, and the shore. It took a quite a bit of time to, to get used to all that. When did you realize you were becoming an elite athlete? I, in my last year as junior, when I won all the, all the junior company in the single, and I was stroking the work, and which is a, a, a 10, 10 feet. Uh, after the race, the national coach came over and said, uh, you know, I said, I talked to my coaching committee and we would like to invite you to the winter training camp. So at that time, I know that, you know, somebody is looking at me somewhere and, and they think that I have the potential to be one of the top uh, canoers. And uh, sure enough, and we went to the training camp in the winter. It was a one month long training camp starting in uh, middle of January, middle of February. And when I came back, uh, as I mentioned in my book, uh, actually my, my club mates didn't even recognize me. I was much stronger, much bigger. You know, I had more muscles on it. I have uh, obviously good food and we rested a lot. We trained a lot. And uh, when I was growing up, I, I didn't, uh, you know, I was member of a poor family, basically, and I didn't have... We didn't have too much nutritious food and all the all the nutritional things that you need for training. I mean, I, as I mentioned in my book, I was I went to the school in the morning at about six o'clock, and uh, I had just uh, two pieces of uh, of bread with some lard spread on it, and and that was my whole thing in, in the, until I came back home uh, for dinner. So it was it was very 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 tough for doing you know, athletic competition, athletic preparations with the very little calories made made the national team and with the good nutritious food three times a day plus plus regular sleep and uh, hard training. It it, it completely changed my my body structure and also my attitude to, uh, to the competition. What changed about your attitude? What changed about my attitude is that I... I was training with and against some of the senior paddlers that uh, they were also in the training camp. And we had, a, at the end of the training camp, we had a, 
10 different exercises we had to do, and it was either for points or, for example, chin-ups. How many chin-ups you can do in a half a minute? Or throwing some, uh, some weights or, you know, climbing the rope and things like that. And on that test, uh, I came in in a top 10 out of all the other, other competitors, about maybe 80, 70 paddlers, uh, half of them were canoers, half of them are kayakers. So it gave me an idea that he said, oh, I can do this, you know, I can, I can be there, I can be uh, competitive, and I can, I can perhaps, uh, you know, go to some international races. And that's what happened when, uh, when my partner, Farkas, who also saw the possible, you know, I'm a sort of upcoming junior, approached me to, uh, to do double with it, do double canoeing with So that's, that's what it happened. And you and your partner end up on the biggest international competition there is pretty quickly in 1960. Yeah, well, again, seven months later, you know, made the Olympics. Even four months later, we went to the trials. We, we won all the trials, you know, and... Uh, and that uh, was a big opener for the for the coaches. I and said that, yo, oh, well, it's nice to win at home, but you have to win in internationally. He said. So we went to the international competition, and it did really well. So it put us to the leading position to be a candidate for candidate for the Olympics. So what was it like going to Rome? Because you had done some traveling, kind of outside Hungary. But what was it like more in the West? Well, the West always appealed to me very much. It was always like the, the, the Western movies, although we didn't have too much uh, chance to see them back in Hungary, only just uh, some of the Italian movies, some of the French movies. Uh, so, but I yeah, always liked the, the music, always liked the, the kind of a fashion, you know, the, the fancy Italian shoes, you know, with the pointed nose and the... Uh, the clothing and and all that. So I didn't, uh, although I didn't have for a while, I didn't have enough money to you know buy some of those to the Olympic Games. When I had a little bit more money to sports, I I did have a chance to upgrade my my wardrobe. You know, as, as I mentioned in my book, my mother was a seamstress, so she always made uh, uh, my clothes, and uh, so I was. Uh, but she wasn't really had any kind of. Uh, pattern for, you know, Western-style clothing. So it was all sort of a traditional kind of Hungarian shirts and pants and things like that. When you got money uh, competitions, were was it normal to, like, buy things in the West and then sell them back out? Yeah, but when we got money, the, the problem was that when you go out to the West, like West Germany, Denmark, uh, Italy, Sweden, you have to have a convertible money. The Hungarian foreigns was not convertible out in the West. So we had to buy American dollars with illegal, you know, sell or or buy in Hungary through some uh, different channels and uh, took it out with you, which is also was illegal, carrying foreign currency. And, you, you know, you buy some good marketable stuff out in, in the West, like, uh, for example, the, the big items, pantyhose for women and uh, razor blades, sweaters, shoes, tape recorders and things like that. And, and you take it back to Hungary and you sell them by uh, very profitable. And it was a good business. But, you know, since we were in the summer sports, we had only maybe two or three trips to the West in the summertime. The rest of that was uh, really collecting money and, and buying American dollars on the, on the black market. 
Very profitable, but a little bit dangerous. Yes, it, well, that was definitely a danger. There's a lot of a lot of sportsmen got got caught, and actually, some uh, some of them had some prison terms. Uh, a couple of the water polo players and and uh, modern pentathlon players uh, got got caught at the board. Crossing was always very difficult, as, as I mentioned in my book, and it was always very very nerve-wracking when you come to the board, you know, what, what they're going to do. They're going to strip search you or they just let you go or, uh, or you know, just uh, look at the luggage. And, and uh, so we really never knew what was going to happen at the border. You know, and, and I many times we traveled by train, a few times we traveled by airplane since, uh, you know, we go to uh, some of the countries that were very close and, uh, and it was not as expensive as the air travel. So in Rome, tell us more about your Olympic experience. Did you go to the opening uh, ceremonies? I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. No, I didn't go to the opening ceremony. The reason Ken Kayak Perlus didn't go to the opening ceremony because of the coach decided that next day going to be the heat and it's going to be very tiring to go to the opening ceremony. So we stayed in the Olympic Village which was, you know, completely empty, but they had a sign like a, a Jews bar in there. We can watch the opening ceremony on the TV. And uh, matter of fact, I have to interject in here, Tokyo had the same thing. Tokyo, I didn't go to the opening ceremony. So here I was in two Olympic Games. I never went to the opening ceremony. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very disturbing. You know, when I looking at looking back on it, I uh, don't know how to how to handle it. You know, being a, a four times Olympian, the, the opening ceremony is that's when you really become a. Mm. That's when you really have the Olympic spirit, and uh, all the all the Olympic uh, juice comes into your body. It, it's really to me, it's that's when you reborn, reborn to be a, to be an athlete, an international athlete, an Olympic athlete. That's when you are. Uh, you become christened to this bigger and, and better thing to come. But uh, I didn't have the chance to do that in Rome. And it was very disturbing. And for a long time, I, I didn't know how to handle it because, you know, some of the athletes were coming back and they said, oh, how great it was in the stadium. And then the big, you know, the people just uh, go crazy, you know, for each team. And then you march around the stadium and, get in the infield and you sort of mingle around with the other athletes and then the whole spirit of it is just just happens right there that's when the games are really open and that's where you get the taste of the the olympic spirit and i i didn't have that in the first i still feel it very very strongly that if you're not participating in the olympic games you're not an olympic you know i i still think that is very much in me luckily 72 and 76 both times I had a chance to go and I they there's no way I they could keep me out of the stadium because I I had to be there you know in Rome I went to the closing ceremony because we were lucky we medaled and and the leadership of the team said that okay you guys can stay on the closing ceremony so Otherwise, we would have gone back home. We would not have had a chance to go to the closing ceremony either. But the closing ceremony is somewhat different. I experienced in 72 and 70. The closing ceremony is as, uh, as a sad event in my my. But, you know, everybody is, uh, you know, just, you know, sort of looking around, wandering around aimlessly. 
and thinking about, oh, I forty years or what's going to happen, and uh, you know, some athletes over there with the the medals in their they neck, but ninety percent of the athletes don't have any other things to take back home except the opening and the closing ceremony. You know, they don't have a medal. You know, they have the uniform, but it's, it's somewhat different. You know, just experiencing the spirit of it and, and all this pageantry and lighting of the torch. It's just, it's just so much uh, feeling, so much exuberance, so much uh, of a regeneration on the field that it's it, it just magical. In Rome, you got a bronze medal, but it was your partner's his last chance. How did you feel differently about your what your partner? Oh, definitely. That was you know, that was my first Olympic game. I was very young. I got a medal. I had a few versus my partner. You know, got two medals, and uh, he was too old to uh, really come competitive in in the level that you you want to be competitive. And he decided I'm, you know, I'm going to be out of it. But I said, oh, this, this is my chance now that I, I could maybe step in the single and I can do something in the single as well. Because I was always like the uh, And, uh, well, originally when I was young, when I was in the juniors and I was coming in, I always, but the, my brother unfortunately got sick a year before the Olympic Games. So, so that, that never uh, materialized. But I decided that after the, 1960 games that I, I get in a single and I I try to show it to the coaches that in a single I am just as good as I'm in the double. And although my, my body height and my body is a very uh, lower end of the scale to be to be good for the single, I was only uh, 5 foot 10 and about uh, 67 kilograms, which is 170, 170 pounds. And and that's very light uh, for a particularly in the headwind situation. See, I always hit headwind, slow you down. I didn't have a power to overcome that X that the hand is, headwind hold you back. So I was really had to force myself to, uh, in the headwind. But in the tailwind, I, I always love the tailwind because it, it just pushes you and you really take advantage of it. And because you being the lightweight, you, your canoe is is sort of a little bit up in the surface and the wind just dropped Matter of fact, in Hungary, on the 500 meters, I had in 92 or 63, I had the best time. It was two minutes and three seconds, I did, which was a record for about 50 more years or 10 or 12 or 50 years after I left. It was a tailwind that caught, uh, and I just had a fantastic race. That was my, my best race by far in, uh, in my whole career. And, and as I said, you know, about 10 or 12 or 50, finally, Somebody broke that record because it was also a, a, a winded course and it was a much taller, stronger paddle. So they they in a 500 meter single. Tell us about making it to Tokyo for second Olympic Games. Was it hard to keep going for four years, or were you just hitting your stride? No, it was not hard to uh, go. Well, 1961, year after the Romo Games, I was you know I had the results. I was very respected, you know, in the in the in the sports pa- papers and in the country, and you know everybody recognizes you and, and all that. So I said, oh, I'm going to try the single, and I I, I got a little bit a little bit cocky, a little bit too much uh, swelling in my head, you know, that uh, you know I can do anything kind of thing. So I I, I got in a single and I I missed some trainings and uh, in the winter time I didn't tr- work as hard as I should have. 
So it didn't go for me uh, that single. I was I was an alternate for the world champion and on a long distance, ten thousand meter, not on Olympic, but I didn't enter and I, I was I, uh, I was not happy with that. So I when I came back home and I decided, you know, it just because I was not an entry at the world championship that dropped my money that I really get from the federation. So dropped the money and and that, uh, that really hurt my pocket. So I said, oh, well, uh, the coaches, you know, talked to me again. He said, I think you should go to back to the double and, and do it. I told myself no and, and also told them, no, I'm not going to go back to the double. I'm going to single and I, I, I'll show everybody that I can do it. And, and in 62, it really paid off my hard work in the winter. And I got to the world championships on political reasons because it was in West Germany, the Federation didn't call it the World Championship, they called it the unofficial World Champion. I won the 10,000 meters along this, and I was third on the 1,000. So that was, that was a very good result, and, uh, you know, got my money back, and uh, the coach, you know, came again, talked to me, said, ah, oh, I should go back to the double. Then I told them, oh, we have two more years from, I can, I can get better. But the next year, 63, it was also a bad year for me. I hurt my knee. I tore my ligament in, and I uh, missed some trainings and I uh, run and I couldn't in good condition. But I, you know, I was again an alternate for the world championship. So we came back again, and uh, that was the time when it was my last year I was eligible being drafted Hungarian Army. They can draft you between the age of 18 and six years, they can draft you. And uh, I, I always got deferred because of the uh, my sports club and my results. And, but at this time, I didn't get deferred. I, I got drafted. So in October, or end of October in 63, uh, went to the, uh, the army. And that was, that was just really devastating because, you know, the, the Hungarian army is, is not really a, a resource situation. You know, it's not a picnic. It's, it's very tough. It's very mentally, very degrading. And uh, physically, it's... It's challenging, but I, I actually I like the physical part of that group, you know, to to advance our group in certain exercises. And but in luckily I was not sent to out in the country. I stayed in Budapest. And uh, in early May, the, comp, the sergeant of the compound, you know, see that. But it was only a, a three weeks to the trial, the first trials, and and uh, I I got out and started paddling like a crazy man. I just, you know, went out in a single and I put 30, 40 kilometers a day and tried to drive the boat past one of the old coaches who really knew about techniques, you know, to, to watch watch my technique and we talked about it a lot. And so I made it to the first, uh, I, I, I pretty much detailed it in, in my book how I got there. the trials and I won the first trials. I won the second one. I won the third the Hungarian Sports Illustrated on the back page saying, uh, you know, we won three out of three, you know, and we have a new star and all that. So it was a big thing in Hungary that I could come back in a single and show it to them. But the, the coaches still uh, warned me that, you know, the international result counts, not that that's trial. Several uh, races in internationally, Romania, Denmark, I believe, and, and I did very well. But on the team, my training partner was the previous uh, 1960 Olympic champion was also on the team. And he was a, an older paddler and only trained himself to the Olympic Games, not for the trials and not for the international. He knew that he could pace himself. 
64, the problem was, I think, to me, looking back on it, that I'm not a big person, and I, I lost a lot of uh, weight, you know, and I was definitely overtrained because I read all the trials and training partner, champion, and every other time trials I had to win in order to secure my starting point in Rome, I mean, in, in Tokyo. So I was... Uh, when I got to the Olympic Games, I was really I told the coach I am overtrained. I had fever, you know. I had all the overtrained symptoms that you can name. The coach said, "Oh no, you're just lazy. You can't do." It. So anyway, I I made it to the start line, but uh, it definitely was not on my best. And uh, if it w- if the race would have been in uh, like middle of August, the result would have been different. Sure of that because I could have gone. Three, four seconds faster. Train my speed on a thousand, you know, really slowly coming down and down and you know, lost two, three seconds here and there. I just didn't have, I could not maintain my form through the whole summer, three or four months. So that's what happened in Tokyo. And uh, after I broke my paddle in half, this is it for me. It's got to be something different. It's got to change the whole world around me. And uh, I was talking to a uh, uh, Mr. Smoke and my friend who was over there from the Canadian team, and they lined up an interview and went to the embassy. The rest of it is history. <laughs> I, I had a question. Your Hungarian coach did B12 shots, you mentioned in the book. I'm wondering if you've ever wondered if those were really B12, if he ever put anything else in those shots without you knowing. Well, the coaches have such a power in them. You never really can question and never really, uh, you know, they have an ultimate power on over everybody and of selections and who's going to race what and uh, what kind of a training you do. And, you know, they're always in a motorboat next to you, so you can't really goof off too much. So it, it is very hard to uh, convince them otherwise, indeed, because I, in those days, they really didn't even have, uh, I don't think, the knowledge of overtraining and what that is. It was uh, such a kind of an unknown thing, and uh, but it's clearly I had all the symptoms, and as I know it now, and I recall in my feeling at that time, it just didn't happen. It's very, very unfortunate. I, I felt that I really got a, you know, lost a medal. There. But looking back on it, any better for 68 Olympic Games because in 68 the Hungarian team was very, very strong. There was four or five Jews right behind me, a couple of them that were very powerful. The results show because they got a gold and got the bronze medal. So I probably would have won a medal in Tokyo. It would not have been, just didn't have that kind of a credential unless it was a gold medal. And the gold medal is they usually take it just as a backup. But uh, again, those, those three paddles were very good and very strong and very young. And I would have been, you know, 28 years old. It's a little bit, a little bit old for that. So when you decided that your life had to change and defection was the option, did you remember much of when many Hungarians defected in 1956? Yes. There were two Hungarians in canoeing. One of them was a kayaker named Gabor Joe. Another one was a canoeer in the doubles, Andy Albert. Andy Albert is the, the fellow who actually lived very close to us in Budapest, and he uh, recruited my brother for the club to canoe paddle. We were very good friends for a long time. Matter of fact, 
San Francisco. I, I knew him for a long time and we were very good friends. Unfortunately, he passed away about six years ago. And uh, yeah, he was, uh, he was definitely one of my mentor and a lifetime friend. And also, in the Jackson, in the, uh, one of my fifth weeks, I went to Italy. And he actually coached the Italian team who were second before us in the C2. And even before the competition, he came to me and told me that he said, don't be too uh, cocky about your time in the heats because, you know, I think our team is going to do well being the Italian team. And sure enough, seeing the Italian team before the Olympic Games, and we never see the Russian team before the Olympic Games. But we knew that, you know, we can beat everybody else. We can beat the Romanians, we can beat the Czechs, we can beat the Frenchies, we can beat the Danish team. Everybody we met before beat, and we knew that we can do it because, uh, we, again, we never see the Russian and, and the Italian team, and they came in ahead of us. After you defected, you end up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and you go to the University of Michigan and learn English yeah. very quickly. <laughs> when I was reading the book, I was really amazed at how much you had to learn in such a short amount of time. But what made you decide to come back for 1972? You know what made me decide to come back is that I wanted to be in the opening ceremony. I wanted to be in the opening ceremony. I wanted to be an Olympian who went to the opening ceremony. That's one thing. Another thing is I wanted to show it to myself and maybe to the Hungarians that I, I you know, I'm here and I am my new and I'm doing well and I could make the team. So it was a kind of a, a personal vendetta against the Hungarians, against my feeling of, of you know, you've got to go to the Olympics. I mean, that, that was very strong in me and is still very strong in me. That I, and I always like to become a re-added to that they credit individuals to go to the Olympic ceremony because they feel the same way as, as I do. That that's indeed a beginning of your Olympic career and your, your beginning and you have to pay that respect to the games and Olympic ideas, and uh, you are, you become full, you know, you become a, a whole person, a, a competitor. What were those games like for you? Were they the first, was that the first time you were back in Europe, or had you been competing there as well? No, no, I, I have been there in 1970 for the, yeah, 70 in the World Championships in Denmark. I entered in the 10,000, and I talked to my, my friend, uh, a Hungarian friend, uh, before the race that, you know, we can cooperate and we can help me to uh, draft and, you know, doing all sorts of things. Unfortunately, right after the start, I got hit, hit by the Japanese, and I spun around and I lost a lot of distance, and, and I came in seventh, which is still one of the best competitive, you know. In, in 1971, we went to Belgrade. The World, the World Championships, and with my partner, I, I decided I go to do double, and uh, we were fifth on the 500 meters. It's still one of the best results ever any kind of a canoeing team did at, at World Championships. So, you know, I was I was in pretty good shape in international competition, plus several North American competition in my bag when I tried for the Olympic Games uh, for 72. So I wasn't just you know, came back in that year. I was passing the 70 in Michigan and training for that. And then you continued for 76. So how was it? I mean, now you're in your mid-30s. How was it to maintain the kind of fitness you needed to be an Olympian? Well, 
I did the other discipline of canoes is called marathon racing. It's a sit-down kind of, it's like a normal canoe. <laughs> they have the sit-down canoe in, also in Michigan. So I did that kind of a, just for the fitness. But in 76, it was a totally different kind of a preparation. One of my good friends who was a whitewater paddler, he said uh, to me, matter of fact, it was a Christmas, we had a Christmas party in my house with all the paddlers and he said, hey, you know, how about uh, if you try double for, for the Montreal game? Not because we don't have a boat, we don't have a paddle, you know, I'm not in the shape. He was in good shape. And I said, well, let's let's think about it. So a week later, I went back to him and I told him, okay, let's do this thing. Let's let's first make a boat. So I designed the boat on, on a naval architect design. I designed the boat, made it in our garage. And, uh, and I told him the only way, so I don't want to, make a full out of myself. If you do less than it's on the 500 meters, I said, okay. So we tried and tried and tried and slowly the time was coming down. And just a couple of weeks before the trials, we finally hit the magic mark. We went below two minutes, I think it was 155 or something like that. So I said, oh, that's a good chance. So both and we went to the trials. The trials were set up very interesting. We had to win two out of the three races. And uh, I I think either we lost the first one or the second one, which one right now, but, but I, we lost one of them. So in the third race, we just had to beat the boat that was we lost. And so that was our whole focus on the third race. So we sure enough raced and we beat the boat and we made the team. And that was, that was an interesting selection procedure. Each time the Federation puts out different selection procedures. So. This time, that was a two out of three, which, which in, in our favor, basically, because the more we race, the better we get, because of, we didn't have that much double experience in that new boat. So we, we made the thing. We went to Lake Placid. That was, was outfitted. We trained there, and we just bossed everybody to Montreal and went to the opening ceremony. And here I was, my fourth Olympic game, back to the opening. It was wonderful. It was uh, I knew that that's going by very last one, so really enjoyed every minute of it and uh, really tried to soak in as much as I can. I was a little bit sad-hearted that I, I thought what would have been beautiful if I would have gone to the opening ceremony in Rome, which was my first Olympic Games and obviously the most successful one and the most liked one I've ever been. So, but, but then in Montreal, obviously didn't do that well and went to the rapid charge and we got got out of you know a lot of people were saying that oh you're just doing it for you know get another uniform <laughs> you know, I told them, yeah that's maybe part of it but uh, but you know i still like competition i still still wanted to compete but you had finally had enough after 76. uh finally after that i had i said i i have you know the high style canoeing but not the canoeing itself because i went to you know, into other discipline of canoe, which is marathon racing and outrigger racing and other disciplines, which I am still doing it. Do you still coach so, as well? Because after after competing, you were a coach for a long time. Yeah, we have a, uh, belong to a club in here, a canoeing club, and I still do coaching occasionally. And uh, when, you know, somebody comes along and I, you know, the person is serious or, or pretty young, I, you know, I like to coach. I, I coach kayak and canoe, so it's no problem for me. I'm still keeping up with the, with the, with the, all the coaching material and uh, you know all the latest developments. So I'm uh, to date now as far as coaching. 
four Olympics, four very different Olympics. Do you have a favorite? Well, you know, obviously the favorite one is the first one, particularly you know you have a medal. But uh, I, uh, I I like I like all of them. You know, as far as favorite ones, obviously Rome, and uh, but each has its individual exciting part of it. You know, Tokyo's because I defected from the and Munich because of the uh, Palestinians attack on on the village, and in Montreal because that was a that was my last Olympic. To my knowledge, that was the only Summer Olympic Games when the host country didn't get a gold medal. And uh, only one event, the single can close. Uh, Canadian John Wood was in the pack until about uh, 900 meters. Then in the last uh, uh, meters, uh, I think it's a, the Yugoslavian guy got ahead of him. So that was... And he was um, closer to the grandstand, and was the whole stadium was going crazy. I never heard such a jubilation of of, of the crowd that it was on, on that particular race, and it was, it was really magical. How that home crowd for indigenous sport, that it was named after them, could uh, could be so excited. I, I thought that was one of my one of the Olympic moments that uh, I would never forget. Thank you so much, Andres. You can get Andres' book, Chronicles of an Olympic Defector, at mascotbooks.com, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookstore. I, he's I, Just the whole story is amazing. I mean, anyone who's competed in so many Olympics and ends under such di- different circumstances creates for some really interesting stories. Yes, exactly. So it's always fun to hear the history, and it's it's interesting to see how sport can change the trajectory of your life. Oh, absolutely. His book is pretty interesting because he does get more into, uh, obviously more into the details than we could get into during the the interview. But uh, check it out and uh, let us know what you think of Andres. As we mentioned, the IOC met today. So let's have a little update from their executive board meeting. So the big three things that they talked about were uh, non-discrimination and protests. And we already talked about this. They talked about Tokyo 2020 and Paris 2024 and how the games are going to be streamlined and they're going to look at ways to save money. And then they also talked about the McLaren report about the International Weightlifting Federation, which, oh my goodness, the report's like 122 pages, but our friends over at Weightlifting House did a really good podcast covering it all. So uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Oh, my gosh. Just the, the abuse. Okay, so first, I want to say that McLaren is the same McLaren who conducted the commission and wrote the report on Russian doping. Correct. Same person. And man, I would not want to cook for him because he would tell you how crummy your carrots are. <laughs> he does not pull punches. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The Just the allegations in this report are stunning and a lot of cash in briefcases <laughs> traveling around the world. Right. When I had heard that they were doing this investigation, it was coming up with a report, I assumed that the issue was going to be widespread doping. But the corruption within weightlifting was mind-boggling right and it's all due to one person at the top basically who held control for decades and 
made sure he employed people who didn't know their jobs and or were cronies. So it's pretty incredible. Definitely check out uh, Seb and Dan over at Weightlifting House to hear what they had to say about it. And don't have anything breakable nearby because you will just throw it against the wall. It'll make you so angry. (laughs) On Tokyo 2020 and Paris 2024 to some extent. So T-Bock said basically in his little summary of what happened during the meeting, they said, we've seen great progress. And that was it. And you just thank goodness somebody's chopped in right away. Well, what what progress have you seen, basically? And uh, so Christoph Duby, uh, the Games uh, Olympics executive director, said there are about 200 proposals on the table for what to cut costs on on Tokyo. And there's a lot of nice to have versus have to have. But the fundamentals are basically that the games are about sport and the athletes and there's a line they don't cross on terms of cutting costs for the field of play and making sure that the playing field is what would be an Olympic standard, but not necessarily like the, the rest of the venue. Okay. So does this mean some of the IOC members will have to go to a four-star hotel? (laughs) That was my first first thought too. Like nice to have versus have to have nice to have five-star hotel have to have. How about a three, you know, clean bathroom, right? The Hampton Inn's not so bad. Some of the things that they're looking at for Tokyo are they, uh, Christoph did talk about different buckets that they're looking at. So service levels, quantities, activities, operations, and venues. So they're looking at what could take fewer resources. So one example he gave was, could you change a parking lot to a drop-off point? So you wouldn't have a facility. You wouldn't have to pay security to manage that facility, that kind of stuff. So I love how you call him Kristoff, like he's your personal friend. (laughs) That's okay. I have an IOC pretend boyfriend, so I can't say anything. What's frustrating to me is it took a first time delay in IOC history and a global pandemic for them to consider some of this cost cutting. Oh, I know. Especially when you just look at the the expense of the games keeps inflating and inflating in general. And people complain about that nonstop and how expensive it is for a city to host. And yet they don't look at streamlining very often. And and like they all were also their quantities. Do we need all the space, all the goods and the services because they over plan and under consume? That's generally what happens. So like maybe you could plan better. I'm just so frustrated that, you know, with Agenda 2020 and the new norm, how is this not already done? I know. I know. It's mind boggling. And again, I think it comes from the let's impress this committee that has certain expectations, especially when 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 an organization states in their bid contract, we've got to have five star hotels. What else are like, well, what else can we come up with to make these things special? You know who we need for this? Who? McLaren. Yep. <laughs> Let's get his, that's his next commission. Looking at how he will tell you, them, you just take you any not need your five star hotels. Take it easy there, people. All you need is a super couponing woman to go in and they can tell you how to how to cut your costs. It's true. 
just get that Midwestern mother-in-law and her jello salad and she will take care of business. <laughs> yeah, right. Bring those Calgary people back who had the potluck. They knew how to cut costs. Right. Bring that attitude throw, back. Oh, throw a casserole and some jello salad and some paper cups with, you know, a little beer and you're good to go. Right. They're looking at the activities around the game, so which ones add value to the experience and heighten people's emotions because they're they want spectators to have one of the best experiences of their lifetimes when they go to the Olympics. However, they don't necessarily have the money to spend on all of the stuff anymore. So they're gonna look at what what's gonna be great, what's gonna really work and probably spread the the spirit of the games to more people, but I would imagine there's going to be a reduced effort in some of those things. I hope they don't take away those flower arches that they were going to do through the line. Oh, that's right. I hope they don't take that away, because that will definitely heighten your experience. Mm -hmm. You might be sneezing a lot, but it would be really pretty. And then another thing they looked at, they couldn't have some of the test events because of the pandemic. So they're going to actually... See if they need to have those. Right, because they found issues with some of the venues Mm -hmm. when they did those test events. Right, and that's why they have them. The spraying snow. (laughs) Remember that? You have to wonder, like, okay, the pandemic happened and it's delaying the games, but you know what? Nobody's talking about the heat in Japan anymore. I was just thinking that. It'll be interesting if that story comes back around. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it might come back around in like July when it's like one year to go and everything's getting really hot, but who knows? But then if, as we were talking about in the first place, that the heat may diminish the number of corona cases, all of a sudden the heat will be like, yay, it's super hot in Japan. Well, see, I don't know, but but can reporters' brains hold all of this? Can they hold all of the protests? Can they hold the cancellation and delay of the games and add in the heat and the pandemic? Never, never mind the alien invasion that's coming in August. Right? Still, still looking for that. I know it's it's my the last corner I need in my apocalypse bingo card. There you go. And we want you to win. No, wait, I don't really want you to win. I don't want an alien apocalypse. Also, the IOC is going to have five new members proposed for election to the IOC session. They're going to be three women and two men. So that's going to raise the number of females on the IOC membership. And one of those is a woman from Saudi Arabia, which is interesting given the fact that Saudi Arabia didn't allow women to compete at the Olympics until 2012. That's fantastic. And then there are a bunch of medals being reallocated. Again? Yes. Is it for doping still? Um, let's take a look. They didn't talk about... Oh, gosh. It's it's from London 2012, Sochi 2014, Rio 2016, and Youth Olympic Games, Buenos Aires 2018. No! Yes. That is crazy. Holy cow. It is a long list. Oh, if the Youth Olympic Game ones is for doping, I'm really going to lose it. Um, let's see. So London 2012 was the women's 20-kilometer race walk. Weightlifting, which was a, an anti-doping thing, also London 2012. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Sochi, ice hockey, women, three Russians were disqualified from the team. Uh, Rio, women's 400-meter 
Rio four by four hundred women's relay. Same person. Same person. Yeah. Uh, oh yes. So the Buenos Aires twenty eighteen Youth Olympic Games weightlifting women's sixty three and above kilograms. Thailand, oh, uh, Thailand. a Thai athlete anti doping, and nice. that's also part of the IWF uh, the McLaren report on the IWF. They t- uh, Seb and, and Dan talked about this because Thailand's one of those countries that has been kind of institutional in its use of drugs. And last year they banned the whole country from competition. Right. And they, yeah. So okay. we'll uh, see what happens with that. But that's really sad that somebody from the Youth Olympic Games has been caught doping. That just does not set a good, doesn't no, set does a good precedent. Me, it does make me feel better that it's part of that whole Thailand system mm-hmm. because that's a single problem. Like, they didn't start doping those kids at 25 years old. We know that those people who got caught older were doping younger. So we're that makes me less angry than if it was a different system now introducing doping. So that's part of a system we already were upset about. So I don't have to get upset about something else entirely. There's only so many things I can be upset about at once. I have to take my dog to physical therapy. <laughs> Paris 2024, they're talking about ways to reduce costs and the big thing that's come out is that they are going to limit the number of athletes to 10,500 which is what is in the charter I believe that's the limit that they have for Tokyo and Rio you you've got more athletes participating because they didn't include the extra sports that those organizing committees could pick so Paris has to include the four sports that they chose in their oh, so quota of athletes. So oh, it really good. will be a downsizing. Okay. Good. I mean, seriously, how can we possibly watch 10,000 athletes compete? Especially when we have to go to French Polynesia. <laughs> Somebody asked about that. How do you, you know, how if you have a simplification of the games applying to Paris, how do you have surfing in Polynesia? Well, the dance around this one wasn't about costs. It was environmental impact and they said they've uh, asked for a further report compiled by sustainability experts but Tahiti already hosts a pro competition every year so they've got a setup for this already and hopefully that doesn't have any further environmental impact and that and the sporting conditions are ideal so that is why they're still recommending going to Tahiti but they did not talk about the costs involved in getting people there and back. I was hoping uh, T-Bag would say, well, Alison is already making her coconut broth <laughs> and she has promised me a drink with an umbrella. I don't so... think Christoph Doobie got that message. Oh, <laughs> uh, okay. Yeah, Christoph can get a drink with a, an umbrella too. Since I, I can't go to Tokyo 2020, I, you know, I'm going to Tahiti 2024. <laughs> I have no idea what any of those accents were. I think that would be the Schlichtelstan accent of unknown origin. (laughs) I love it. Oh, I love that. Speaking of Schlichtelstan, let's check in with our team. You found some news on Instagram that was so exciting. Yeah. So pair skater Nate Bartolome, who had surgery on his knee last year and... He and Deanna Stellato had said they were no longer skating together. 
And now he came out with a new partner. So it seems like he's coming back this season. Um, He's going to be skating with Katie McBeath, who is a former collegiate skater. And they were showing us pieces of their short program on Instagram. That is fantastic. I'm so excited. He can't stop. No. Can't stop, won't stop. Can't stop, won't stop. Good luck to him. It was interesting because he said he had surgery on his knee and it took seven months to recover from that. And then they had another couple months off the ice due to COVID. And I wonder what it's like just being off the ice for that long or being away from that thing that you love. Right. Because does your, I mean, obviously your brain doesn't forget how to do things and you will lose some of the jumps and things like that. But just the itch to skate must be crazy. Right. Well, best of luck to both of them. We're excited to look at the next season and see how they do. And I think that will wrap it up for this week, right? I think we've had enough. All right. Next week, we are going to speak with Dr. Claudia Reardon on ADHD in elite athletes. And she's fascinating. So this is not a conversation to miss. I was really just talking to her was so interesting. And we've had so many things with ADHD come up over and over and over again. So it was something that we we've been wanting to cover for a while. So it was a good good conversation. Exactly. So tune in next week for that. Don't forget our book club is coming up at the end of July. We are reading 1964, The Greatest Year in the History of Japan by Roy Tomizawa, one of our Shukfastanis. And uh, we are also doing movie club in August. We have a double feature of Prefontaine and Without Limits. So get to watching, get to reading, and let us know what you think. Email us at flamealivepod at gmail.com call our voicemail hotline at 208-FLAME-IT. We're Flame Alive Pod on Twitter and Insta and keep the Flame Alive Podcast group on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening and until next time, keep the flame alive. Well, what else can we come up with to make these things special?